yeah, industrial seems really strong. There are a lot of macroeconomic forces, factors at play that also point to the fact that industrial might remain strong for years to come. Things like interest rates are high. So that means that there's going to be less development because there's less yield. Normally when there's a shortage of supply, you get developers. So there is some development, but only in the incredibly hot markets like the Central Valley in California or Savannah, Georgia, where new ports are being built. Very many places where you can put it, either shortage of supply, increased costs, all the reasons why it's hard to build things. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. Joining us today is David Cruz Palmer. David's been in commercial real estate for over 15 years with experience across the aisle, a broker, owner, investor, and developer. After helping a wide range of companies to plan and execute real estate strategies, David founded Corridor Capital Partners and has transitioned into being a full-time real estate investor and operator based out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Corridor focuses on syndicating investments in industrial properties that generate passive income and tax advantage returns for their equity partners. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I I like to dig in on people's background. You've been in real estate. I was browsing through your LinkedIn profile, a lot of different stops, you know, in the intro, broker, investor, developer. What started you into commercial real estate? Initially, I was a couple of things. When I was an undergrad, I had some friends who wanted to just do a real estate development. I helped them find... 40 acres. And that one of the guys had some money from his family and uh, found 40 acres and subdivided it into five acre parcels and and split that up. And then um, right after undergrad, I was what I call the world's worst mortgage broker. I did absolutely zero deals for probably three to four months. Uh, My best friend's next door neighbor put together a mortgage company and he's like, you guys are young. You went to college. You can like figure out how to be mortgage brokers. And I was terrified of uh, cold calling. And uh, I didn't want to, you know, people are sitting at home at dinner and it's that whole thing like, you know, they don't want to hear from me. It's just, you know, all, all the reasons to not do things are so present in your head, especially when, you know, this was in 2003. No no one was talking about mindset back then, or, or maybe they were, and I just wasn't, you know, aware of anyone other than maybe Tony Robbins. So uh, that was hilarious. I also knew that I liked real estate. I found a job where immediately after that, I actually started making 200 cold calls a day, uh, not doing real estate. But I learned that, you know, it kind of doesn't matter what I think. Sometimes that's the job and that's the hard work. And when I found the job that I, where I was doing 200 cold calls a day, I figured out what being a commercial real estate broker was. And and that was in San Francisco. And I was like, you know what, that's what I want to do. But um, to get into that type of job fast, you need to have some kind of connection. Like your dad needs to be a CFO and his best friend is a broker or something like that. And I didn't have any of those connections. So um, I spent about a year networking my way into being a broker at a tenant rep commercial real estate firm in San Francisco that became, that actually ended up acquiring Cushman Wakefield and using their name. So I did that. And then I switched to a company called Savills, also doing what's called tenant rep commercial real estate, where you help only companies that are looking to be occupiers of space. And uh, did that for 15 years. And the funny thing about being a broker is you say that every broker you talk to probably says they want to own real estate, but so few of them do, even though they're absolute, a lot of times just absolute experts and, and frequently quite good at it, but they don't usually own a, own any. I made the leap. I had uh, you know some time during this thing called we, we call COVID. And I uh, made the leap and learned, filled some holes in knowledge that I didn't have. Just kind of put my head down and figured it out. So I've been doing it ever since then. Fantastic. Why industrial real estate? Obviously, you've been in that space for a while and there's been ups and downs over the length of your career. Definitely seems like industrial is is coming to the fore as a maybe a sexy class to invest in. Um, but you were in it long before it was hitting the front page. What made you pick that route? Yeah. From my perspective, it's 
you know, I say industrial and that asset class focus could change at some point in time. Initially, I called it corridor industrial and then switched it to corridor capital partners. The answer is what I focus on or what I think is valuable real estate, commercial real estate for investing. It's something that doesn't, there isn't a lot of, there hasn't enough, not enough of it has been built. And for whatever reason, there is not enough industrial real estate out there. Most of it was initially built and like started in the 1940, like after World War II, we started building these neighborhoods and then we needed warehouses. And a lot of those had low ceiling heights. And then we had this, you know, we'd build them as needed for either manufacturing and always in the outskirts of town. And the requirement or the need for industrial has kind of expanded and changed from just like these small buildings, you know, 10, 20 maybe 50,000 square feet with roll-up doors where your plumber can like have his supplies and like have a truck that comes and goes or like a manufacturing place where General Electric, right, does does their thing. It's changed from that to with e-commerce and the Amazons and the Staples and all of these different companies that need to have these big box industrial facilities located near big cities and near highways with 30 foot ceilings to, you know, 30 to 100 foot ceilings. There just hasn't been enough of that made. And as the population grows, there's a demand for that old stuff with the roll-up doors, right? There's a real shortage of demand for what's called flex warehouse or shortage of supply for what's called flex warehouse. And there's a shortage of supply for these 30 foot tall ceilings because that concept of building it to that size is relatively new. You ask about why industrial um, specifically, it's just because there isn't very much of it. Um, when I was a broker, one of the one of the things you do when you represent a tenant is you go and you analyze the market and you say, okay. So the companies I worked with were based out of San Francisco primarily, but they'd have all locations across the country or across the world. So you go into a market where this company has an office, or maybe they want to open a new office or an industrial location. And you look at the supply, what's the availability? What are the prices? You look at the, what's the availability of labor? And so you just cross-reference all these data points. And then you can kind of pretty quickly figure out like which market makes the most sense by sort ranking. I did a similar analysis when I decided to choose industrial because I mean, office is kind of a weird animal. Retail is also a strange animal. I'm glad I didn't choose office. And I know some people are trying to be contrarian right now and actually invest in office. Um, I think it's a really scary proposition. <laughs> yeah, industrial seems really strong. There are a lot of macroeconomic forces, factors at play that also point to the fact that industrial might remain strong for years to come. Things like interest rates are high. So that means that there's going to be less development because there's less yield. Normally, when there's a shortage of supply, you get developers. So there is some development, but only in the incredibly hot markets like the Central Valley in California or Savannah, Georgia, where new ports are being built. Very many places where you can put it, either shortage of supply, increased costs, all the reasons why it's hard to build things. And then there's increased demand from like deglobalization where China shuts down cities for months at a time and China produces 20% of the world's goods. So these companies that have shipping and receiving that manufacture things in China, bring it from China to the US, they have a facility in the US, it gets distributed to there. They say, you know what, we need more predictability. So more manufacturing is coming back to the US. With more manufacturing, there's more storage for products and that just means that there's going to be more strain and need for industrial space that there's already a shortage of supply on. It's a three to 4% vacancy rate across the country. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the reshoring concept, I think is going to be a fascinating story to watch unfold over the next five years. You know, COVID just scrambled so many supply lines and really exposed just-in-time manufacturing, just-in-time inventory practices. Those practices are very efficient on a balance sheet and they please shareholders when everything is running smoothly. But when you have the the 
constraints of COVID lockdowns and, and everything else that has happened over the last 30 months, there's not a lot of slack in the system. And thus, you know, that's one of the reasons um, that we're seeing all the inflation we are today on top of all the money that was printed. So you mentioned earlier, David, that you had a one of your first jobs was 200 cold calls a day. Yeah. I'm curious, what did you learn through that experience? It doesn't sound like you were at that job for terribly long. But I was there for two years. Um, okay. Yeah, that's a long uh, time. The writing was on the wall position. at the end of year one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did I learn? What do you mean? Like uh, what actual skills? You know, I, I think it was a sort of a mindset, you know, yeah. of you got to do the work and don't be scared of it and don't be scared of failure. Right. I learned uh, sales skills. I learned how to talk to people on the phone. I learned that uh, a lot of perspective things like you got people have to like you. And even more importantly, I think you have to like them. And if you like someone, then they're more likely to like you, which just sounds so silly to say out loud, but I find it to be incredibly true even today. So, you know, I'm pitch- syndicating and talking to investors about my deals and I'll just have this feeling like, it's funny. I think in the end, it's like, I don't know if I want to work with this person, but I don't realize it because I'm pitching this thing. I'm trying to sell this thing that's important to me. And, um, afterwards they end up not committing and I have a little bit of relief. And I think that's probably not the right person that I, I probably didn't want to work with that person, but there's so many people that I meet that I do like. Uh, and that I think that's kind of who I am as a person. I just, you know, I, I try to see the best of people. And when I do see them and when I do like them, it usually works out well, um, both from a sale or from an investor or, you know, obviously just from relationships in life. But I think recognizing those things pretty early on in, in my working life um, was really valuable, has been really valuable for me. Also just heads down 200 cold calls a day, man. I'm not scared to make a single phone call to anyone about it. <laughs> I did some quick math. That's 100,000 calls over two years if you're yeah, taking I did a not do that vacation. Math, but it does not surprise me. That's a lot of rejection. You walk into a room on day one. I, I, I'll never forget the first day I walked into the room. It was probably 20 people who do the same job. And I remember interviewing and I had to like have these like, you know, mock calls with a, a few different people. It was not a glamorous job. But um, the people that I worked with, I'm still really good friends with. And we've all gone on to like varying levels of success. You walk in and everyone's making cold calls and I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know what the next step is in the process, but you just get on the call phone and you say, this is David, I'm selling this thing. Would you be interested in the thing? And then you do it a hundred times, just the repetition, getting the reps in. You eventually get good at it or you leave or both. <laughs> yeah, usually both. It's a great skill set that's transferable. I find a lot of people who've been successful in real estate have some sort of cold calling in their background, even before they get into real estate. It seems to cultivate a healthy edge, kind of reduces the fear of failure and, and gives you a lot of practice at building connection with people. You say that you try to like people. And, and I think that's very perceptive. People can tell. I was in a sales position for 10 years. People can tell when you're trying to make an effort and it's genuine. There's a lot of different ways that people do that. How do you try to get to a spot where you're genuinely enjoying slash liking the uh, the person on the other side of the table or phone? Yeah. It's, it's a matter of just trying to relate to people and understand their perspective. I, I feel like that's my best way of you know trying to make a friend or trying to maybe fit in with other people, something like that. I'd love to hear a story from your time in the industrial market. Do you, do you have anything that comes to mind, a transaction that was especially hairy or um, <laughs> that you pulled together and you know just anything at all that you think would be interesting for our audience? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so every deal is different. Every deal is unique. Every deal has a story to it. I'll say, uh, I'll, t- I'll talk about one that was actually the first one that I did. And maybe that'll help explain a little bit about industrial real estate at the same time. Industrial building, uh, 200 
50,000 square feet, 20 some acres. And the goal is to, you know, it's, it's an NOI game, right? You're trying to figure out what's the NOI, what are the cap rates? And then you can figure out what the value is and what your value add play is, right? So in this scenario, there there's a company that leases the majority of the space. It's a credit publicly traded company, and they've got two years left on the lease. And there's another smaller company, and then there's some vacant space. And so I found this one. It was off market. I knew the broker. Um, he's a friend of mine. And um, we put in an offer, and it's clear that there was value because we were getting it at an eight and a half cap, which is just, it's on rail, and it has this really high credit tenant. And their lease is expiring. And so what's interesting about this is the things that are good from an investor's perspective aren't necessarily good from a bank's perspective. So you can go in and you can get bridge debt or you can go to a bank. And banks, I had a lot of banks not like this, not only because it wasn't my first deal. Uh, you know, that, that's a that's an obvious reason to have a really deep scrutiny. But beyond that, they didn't like that there were 24 months left. And what if the tenant leaves? And so all the analysis that I had to do as an investor or that I would have done as a broker to figure out, can this company go anywhere else? Where else would they go? What are their options? Just doing that market analysis um, to figure out how captive or how how likely they were to stay was relevant um, in talking to the bank, but also to my investors. So uh, we're, we're actually in the middle of lease negotiations now where we'll, we're going to add somewhere between uh, we're going to add some number of years to their lease, and that will increase uh, the valuation because it was it was undervalued based on how little term there was. So the appraiser will increase the value, will, will probably increase the rent a little bit, and ideally fill the vacant space, increase NOI, do a cash out refi or or a sale, depends on how things work, and then that'll end up being a really good deal. Oh, that's fantastic. Appreciate you sharing that. I think a lot of our audience is familiar with multifamily. One part of industrial, there's several parts that are appealing if you're investing in multifamily, but one of them is your tenant relationships are a lot different. There's a lot fewer of them and uh, there's a lot more certainty baked in and you can move the needle quickly if you pick up a project that is near the end of its lease term and you can find either a a better tenant or get that tenant to re-up at a a higher rate. That makes the, the math equation very simple and you can move the needle very, very quickly. Uh, multifamily, I don't, it doesn't scare me. It makes sense to me that say probably the same way it does to a lot of other people, right? Like we've all paid rent or a mortgage, right? But for industrial or for any commercial, there are leases and they're years long and the credit of the tenant has a big impact on this, the quality of the deal. So they could sign a five or a 10 or a 15 year lease. And then you you know that you have this income. And if your your tenant is publicly traded company or a fortune 500 company, you know that you're, there's a very small chance that they go. And they don't pay rent. But if you have a mom and a pop, I don't know, that does deliveries or something like that, then there's a high chance that they that they do um, stop paying rent. So you can evaluate the deal based on the credit of the tenant. You can get a really long term lease, and you can you can really protect yourself from some some downside or from the fact that they might um, fold up shop in the middle of the night. That makes sense. Um, as you're in the mid Atlantic area. You started Corridor Capital, striking out on your own, buying industrial assets. What do you see? Why that area? I guess what's the thesis behind that? And how are you using creative financing structures to help you achieve your acquisition goals? I like doing things that I can see more readily. I'm also looking in Florida. I think there are markets that make a lot of sense. Um, But starting close to home, where I can, you know, initially I started close to home because it's easier to see. Most of my properties are within a couple of hour drives. But I'm looking at Florida and about to go and contract in a couple of buildings down there, which should close Q1 or Q2. 
to. And those are supply constrained markets, right? Florida for this and people are moving there. And um, there's also a lot of growth in Virginia too. Richmond, Virginia had the highest rent growth of any city in the country. Really? Yeah. It's just this really strange outlier for industrial specifically. And there was a building that I had an offer in on. There was a guy who owned, he's owned for a while. He said he was interested in selling. So just make me an offer. So I put a, like a real offer. It wasn't a total low ball. And he kind of like laughed me out of the room and his rents he had in place for something like $4 and 50 cents a square foot triple net. And so I put in an offer at uh, seven cap and to your question of creative financing, I asked for 20% seller carry. And, uh, and he's like, no way. Uh, I had offers for like $5 million and no seller carry whatsoever. And, you know, we would maybe consider selling for six. And I wish he had just told me that at the beginning, because that would, that would have been something like a four cap for industrial, which is maybe normal or maybe was normal for multifamily, but for industrial, it's just, he doesn't have Amazon as a tenant. Let's put it like that. If he had Amazon, then I'd be like, okay, maybe that makes sense. Even today, that doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, having Amazon as, a, as your tenant at a four cap because interest rates are what they are. So I say all this, but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I think maybe there's more upside because he thinks rents are going to get closer to $6 a square foot when when this lease expires in two and a half years for uh, one of the tenants that's in half the building. But I actually think there's even more room for rent growth than his $6. I don't think I'm going to take the risk unless he's willing to do some amount of seller carry, but it's Richmond, Virginia is, is a market that I'm really hot on just because there, there have been so many people moving from say Washington, DC who can work from home. It's a really cool city. Everything's undervalued there in my opinion. It's going up quickly like everywhere has, but from an industrial perspective, it's also the largest major city um, concentration of city that's close to the port, which is in like Norfolk, Virginia Beach area. Oh, that's interesting. We deal with owners pretty often in an off-market capacity. And and I always appreciate when they're pretty straight with you on what they're looking to get out of a deal or what their recent offers have looked like. Because I've had that same situation where I've put what I felt like was a fair offer on the table. And right. then you come to find out, oh, well, you're 30% off. It's like, well, yeah, gee, like a slight indication couldn't hurt you. Hard, that to, hard to overcome that. Right. And I always open with what do you want to, what would you let it go for? Right. Or what are you thinking? Just so I know if we're, if we're, it's worth spending the time. And he said, no, no, just put an offer. Um, I knew he was sophisticated, but I didn't think he was that sophisticated. So like too sophisticated. (laughs) Very educated on the value of his asset. I think everyone is and and deserves to be. That's where we have to get creative, right? So like finding ways to get around these interest rates. I mean, if you can get 10 or 20% seller carry and only put 10 or 15% down, then that does a lot for your equity multiple, whether you have low rates or seven, six and a half percent rates, which is what I'm seeing today. As we get ready to wrap up here, I noticed in one of your bios that you're active in giving back to the community through the Exploratorium Lab. Could you just share a little bit about what you did there, what that organization does and how you give back? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's one that I that was near and dear to my heart. Still give to them in there in San Francisco, but uh, I was on the board there. I was the, a foundational member of, they created a, a board for people who were basically young working people, young working professionals, say anywhere from 25 to 35 years old, because they were trying, the goal was to cultivate a a new donor base who would engage with the the exploratorium in a different way. That place is amazing. It's um, the story of the exploratorium is one of my favorite stories for any museum that exists. Not enough time to get into it now, (laughs) but uh, but I recommend anyone doing research or if you visit San Francisco, go there. If you have kids or if you don't, it's just, it's a magical place with an amazing foundational story. Um, in, in short, there was a guy who uh, started it and he rented a warehouse for like a dollar and one uh, one display that people could come and play with. And and then they'd come in and like throw Frisbees in this open warehouse and play with the display. And then uh, he built another exhibit. And these were all just um, science and art 
type ex- exhibits that you could come in and um, explore. And it wasn't built for children, but it makes sense that it eventually became a museum that's focused on children. Um, beyond that, I am also um, a part of a board here in Charlottesville that uh, helps. Uh, this one's a little harder, harder, a little emotionally more difficult. Uh, there are children who have really difficult um, procedures at UVA Medical Center mm-hmm. and they they don't always have, they're from families that don't have places to stay. So I'm on a board that um, builds the houses to house these families. Um, so we find money and we find the houses and um, fix them up and can have a place um, where their children are undergoing really complicated uh, procedures. Um, and so mm-hmm. the, the half a couple blocks away from the hospital and um, it, it's really helpful for these families. Well, I really appreciate you sharing about that, David. Really neat opportunities to be giving back. That's something that's really important to us at LifeBridge Capital. I think it's part of what makes us human, ultimately, and recognizing the needs around us and doing our part to help fill in those gaps. So that, that sounds like a really neat opportunity to be a part of a foundation that's that's providing housing and support for families that are going through really difficult situations. For folks who want to learn more about what you're doing at Corridor Capital, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm active on LinkedIn, David Cruz Palmer. You can email me. Happy to take emails, answer questions. I'm kind of an open book. So David at CorridorCapitalPartners.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you, David, for joining us today. Thank you to our listeners for listening to another episode of the Real Estate Syndication Show. I'm your host, Sam Rust, signing off. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day.